Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our discussion today is a follow-up to our newsletter topic, CFTR Modulation, Today and Tomorrow. We'll be talking in just a moment with that issue's authors. They're both from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia, where Dr. Claire Wainwright is a professor of pediatrics and child health, and Dr. Tanya Douglas is a senior clinical lecturer. Both authors are also respiratory physicians at the Lady Salento Children's Hospital, also in Brisbane. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from GECUSA Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Gilead Sciences. Learning objectives for this audio program include summarize the appropriate use of CFTR modulator therapies in clinical practice, including patient selection, clinical benefits, and ongoing monitoring, explain the potential barriers to the optimal use of CFTR modulators, and discuss the role of patient-physician collaboration and communication in the use of CFTR modulator therapies. By way of disclosures, Dr. Claire Wainwright has indicated that she has received honoraria from Novartis Pharmaceuticals and Vertex Pharmaceuticals Australia, and has also served as a consultant advisor for Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Tanya Douglas has indicated that she has no financial interests or relationships with a commercial entity whose products or services are relevant to the content of this presentation. Our faculty have also indicated that there will be no off-label discussions of any drugs or products in today's presentation. Dr. Douglas, Dr. Wainwright, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much for asking me. Oh, you're very welcome. It's good to be here. Doctors, your newsletter issue gave us a pretty full picture of how the existing CFTR modulator therapies came to be, as well as a preview of what's likely to come in the foreseeable future. What I'd like to do today is focus on how that information can be applied to actual clinical practice. So start us out, if you would, please, Dr. Douglas, with a patient scenario. Sure. So we have a 15-year-old patient with a G551D and a Delta F508 mutation, and she's attending her routine CF clinic with her mother. She's had moderately severe lung disease with bronchial wall thickening, mucus plugging, and bronchiectasis with air trapping on her CT scan images. And she's also chronically infected with Pseudomonas aeruginosa. She's had four admissions to hospital over the last 12 months, and she has a decline in her lung function from a best FEV1 of 68% predicted last year to 60% predicted FEV1 this year. On examination, she was thin with a BMI that had fallen from the 50th centile to the 5th centile. And on physical examination, she was clubbed. She had a moist cough and crackles were audible in the right lung base. So going into her history, she started Ivacaftor four years ago in 2012. And her lung disease appeared to be quite nicely stabilized until around this last 6 to 12 months. Her treatment regimen also includes albuterol and airway clearance with VEST and a PEP device. She has alternate month tobramycin solution for inhalation. She's using Dornase Alpha, pancreatic enzyme replacement, salt supplementation, and vitamin supplementation. Her mother is concerned that Ivacaftor is no longer working for her and has asked whether Lumacaftor and Ivacaftor combination might address both the CFTR mutations and also provide a better outcome for her. So two initial questions. Is Ivacaftor actually failing in this patient? And might the mother's suggestion to switch to the Lumacaftor-Ivacaftor combination potentially be appropriate? Dr. Wainwright, your thoughts. 
Well, actually, I don't think that there is any evidence at all that combination therapy with Lumicaftor and Ivacaftor together would provide any benefit for this patient. And in fact, combination therapy is not indicated for this genotype. So what we've seen is that combination therapy has not shown any benefit in patients who carry one copy or who are a heterozygous for the F508 del CFTR mutation. And in addition, there is actually a drug interaction between the Lumacaftor and the Ivacaftor, and that reduces the dose of Ivacaftor that is available in the combination therapy compared with taking Ivacaftor monotherapy on its own. And that in itself might reduce any potential benefit. So for this patient, it really is not indicated to use the combination therapy. Now, there are some nice new clinical trials in progress that are going to assess different combination therapies on the CFTR function in patients with gating mutations who are heterozygous for the F508-DEL mutation. And I think we're likely to see some new approaches that might provide greater benefits compared with either Caftal monotherapy in the future. But for now... The only CFTR modulator therapy available for this patient and for patients with this genotype is Ivacaftor. Dr. Douglas, do you agree with what Dr. Wainwright just said? And if so, what do you think might be going on with this patient? I do agree. Look, I think ultimately this could be an issue regarding adherence. But let's just talk about some of the studies in Vision and Strive. And uh, these studies were conducted in patients just like this patient with at least one G551D mutation. What these studies showed was an increase in FEV1 of around 10% from baseline and improvements in body weight and reduction in pulmonary exacerbations in those patients who were randomized to Ivacaftor. And these results were compared to placebo. The effects were apparent as early as two weeks into treatment, and importantly, the effects were sustained throughout the whole 48-week trial period into the 96-week open-label period. So for this patient, we would expect ongoing stability. We also might expect a reduced rate of decline in lung function longer term, and this was seen in the trial among patients with the G551D mutation. While the disease-modifying effect is very exciting, Ivacaftor does not cure CF. There is still a rate of lung function decline of around half of what might be expected without Ivacaftor over time. So it is possible that the decline in lung function for this patient is really just part of her ongoing CF disease. But what we do need to consider is whether she has a new airway infection and whether she's developed any complications such as allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis or potentially the development of CF-related diabetes. So these must be considered in addition. You said that the decline in this patient's condition might be an issue of adherence. Talk to us a little more about that, if you would, please. So this is a young lady who's 15 years of age, and from clinical experience, we recognize that adolescent patients have difficulties with adherence. There are other things in their lives that often take precedence over their CF care. There are also data from the trials that suggest that adherence might not be optimal, even with either Caftor, which is a relatively simple medication, and especially in young people and adults. So consideration of suboptimal adherence with other therapies, so the standard regular therapies, is important as well. And so what we need to do here is have a frank and honest discussion with our patient about how she takes her Ivacaftor, making sure that she takes it with fatty food, and whether she's continuing with her standard regular CF treatment. So as her physician, I'll need to sit down and find out what barriers she may have to optimal adherence, 
what's happening in her life and how I might be able to navigate and problem solve these with her and her family so she can be in a position to get the best results from ongoing use of either castor. And adherence is very important and needs to be discussed with all patients on a regular basis, along with barriers to taking therapy and continuing therapy. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctors. And we'll return with Dr. Wainwright and Dr. Douglas in just a moment. This is Bob Busker. I'm managing editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is a combination newsletter and podcast program delivered via email to subscribers. Newsletters are published every other month. Each issue reviews the current literature in areas of importance to pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, infectious disease specialists, pediatricians, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, nurses, and physical therapists. Bi-monthly podcasts are also available as downloadable transcripts, providing case-based scenarios to help bring that new information into practice in the clinic. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge or prerequisite. Continuing education credit for each issue and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information on this educational activity, to subscribe to and receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge, and to access back issues, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. I'd also like to tell you about the CF Family Day Meeting Builder. This is a one-stop shop to help you create patient and caregiver educations and family day meetings. To find out more, please visit www.cffamilyday.org. One more thing I'd like to tell you about is the new Get Smart app. Get Smart, safe means of administering the right therapy, and that applies to extended release and long-acting opioids, is available for CME, CE, and MOC credit at no cost. Visit dkbmed.com forward slash smart to download the Get Smart app for Apple iOS, Android, or desktop today. That's dkbmed.com forward slash smart. Welcome back to this eCystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guests are Dr. Claire Wainwright and Dr. Tanya Douglas from the University of Queensland. And we've been discussing the clinical applications of CFTR modulation. So let's continue in that vein, and if you would, Dr. Wainwright, bring us another patient scenario. Yes, so Tim has just had his 12th birthday, and he was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis through newborn screening, and he's homozygous for the F508-DEL mutation. He loves sport, and he's trying out for his school football team. And Tim has a BMI on the 50th percentile, he's had normal growth, and he's just starting to go into puberty. The lung function has been stable over the last couple of years, and his FEB1 is around 85% of the predicted value. But his previous best FEB1 was around 90% of the predicted value when he was around eight years of age. Now, Tim has cultured Staphylococcus aureus intermittently from sputum cultures, and he has had two intermittent infections with Pseudomonas aeruginosa in the past, but on each of those occasions, he's had successful eradication of the organism. Now, despite stable lung function, he has had around two pulmonary exacerbations per year over the last couple of years, requiring admission to hospital for intravenous antibiotics. Tim also has a past history of a little bit of asthma and mild eczema, and he has had the occasional admission for asthma. And Tim also has had intermittently elevated transaminase levels up to around twice the normal range since he was five years of age. 
but his physical exam and his liver ultrasound have not indicated any concern regarding significant liver disease. And in particular, there's no evidence that he has any cirrhosis or portal hypertension. His regular therapy includes pancreatic enzyme supplementation and vitamin therapies, and he uses inhaled Dornase Alpha, some inhaled corticosteroids and albuterol, and his airway clearance regimen is a fairly standard regimen as well. Now, his parents are aware that he could now start combination therapy with Lumacaftor and Ivacaftor, but they've been worried about the liver enzyme changes, and they wonder whether that might be a problem for him if he starts the combination therapy. And they've also heard that some patients have had the chest tightness when starting combination therapy, and they're worried because of his past history of asthma and that he has required the occasional admission for asthma. They also feel that he has remained very stable for some time with regards to his chest. And given his young age, they're worried about starting a relatively new therapy that might be taken over a long time. Well, is combination therapy with Lumacaftor, Ivacaftor indicated for this patient at this time? Dr. Douglas, how would you advise the family? Mm. Well, we know that um, the use of combination in therapy in patients with CF who are homozygous for Delta F508 is associated with a modest improvement in pulmonary function, and that improvement was maintained for the duration of the clinical trials. And we also know that pulmonary exacerbations and some modest improvement in nutritional status were also observed. So Tim is starting to go through puberty, and growth and nutrition are going to be very important for him. He's also going to want to avoid any hospitalization during this time so that he can maximize his school attendance and keep up with his social life. While his lung function has remained stable over the past few years, it has fallen from his previous best values. An important consideration here is that if he continues to have pulmonary exacerbations, he is at risk of further loss of lung function because we know that around a quarter of all pulmonary exacerbations are associated with incomplete recovery of previous lung function. He's also at the highest risk of loss of lung function over his adolescent years. So yes, I think it is worthwhile starting Tim on combination therapy and my hope would be that is that we can prevent further pulmonary exacerbations, reduce the risk of lung function loss and optimize normal growth and nutrition through his adolescence. I'd like to focus on this patient's recent exacerbations. You said he's had two a year over the past two years. And Dr. Wainwright, do these exacerbations have any impact on your recommendation for combination therapy? Well, in fact, even if Tim had not had any exacerbations recently, I would still consider the use of combination therapy. We're now moving to a different, more preventative model of treatment, and we actually want to maintain health rather than wait for deterioration and evidence of disease progression before starting therapies. So clearly, when you do that, you need to do it very carefully and work closely with patients and their families. You have to tailor therapies for them as individuals, and you don't want to overburden them with therapies. But the goal of therapy should really be to avoid deterioration and to maintain health. And I think this is an option for the family to consider. What about his liver enzymes? He doesn't show significant liver disease, that was made clear, but his levels have been intermittently high over the past seven years or so. Uh, My question, Dr. Wainwright, how big a concern are these elevated liver enzymes if he starts combination therapy, and what kind of monitoring should be done? Well, Bob, in the clinical trials of combination 
therapy, patients with severe liver disease were actually excluded. But Tim does not appear to have severe liver disease, so he would fit the inclusion criteria for the trials, and I would be happy for him to start the combination therapy. So elevation in transaminase levels is really very common in patients with cystic fibrosis, and it does not necessarily indicate significant liver disease. Now, elevated liver enzymes are also reported in equal proportions in patients taking placebo or active treatment in the phase three trials of combination therapy. However, we did see more severe adverse events in the actively treated group. So I'm reassured that his liver ultrasound and physical exam did not identify any concerns regarding liver disease. But I would suggest that we check liver function tests prior to starting the combination therapy with Lumicaftor and Ivacaftor. And I would also check his liver function in the first two to four weeks after starting therapy and then three monthly over the first year of use. And if all that remains stable, then we would go to the recommended annual checking. The parents expressed concern about the potential side effects of Lumicaftor-Ivacaftor therapy on their son's asthma. Dr. Douglas, how would you address that? Mm, It's a good question. So during phase three trials, traffic and transports, around 13 to 15% of patients taking combination therapy experienced dyspnea compared with around 8% of patients taking placebo. And around 9 to 11% of patients taking the combination therapy also experienced chest tightness compared with around 6% of those on placebo. So these respiratory symptoms were relatively short duration and resolved after the first few weeks of therapy, and also they responded to the use of bronchodilators. Interestingly, it wasn't possible to predict which patients might experience these symptoms in those with a previous history of asthma. So my advice to Tim would be to pre-dose with albuterol prior to starting combination therapy, and we would normally give the first dose of combination therapy in the clinic. Let's assume you are going to start this patient on lumicaftor-ivacaftor therapy. Uh, Overall, what advice would you give to the parents? Okay, so the family will need a good discussion about the side effects and interactions of the combination therapy with other medications and also their expectations. So they need to be aware of that combination therapy can interact with other drugs and medications. And so they need to be sure that they tell any healthcare professional that Tim is taking combination therapy before starting other medications. And in particular here, starting macrolides such as erythromycin and antifungals such as voriconazole. They also need to be aware that certain over-the-counter products can interact, as can some alternative therapies. So we would sit down and run through any medications that Tim is taking, including over-the-counter therapies and alternative medicines, before we start combination therapy. In terms of managing expectations, this is really important, as we might not expect to notice large changes or improvements in Tim's clinical status. And this is especially the case as Tim has been stable for some time and his lung function is in the normal range. So I will need to talk about the potential for maintaining health and the importance of continuing his regular medications to optimize Tim's overall health outcomes. Dr. Wainwright, anything to add? 
Yes, I think managing expectations is going to be very important because we don't really expect to notice large changes in clinical status, especially as Tim has really been stable and his lung function has been in the normal range. And I think particularly because of the past, people have very high expectations with taking CFTR modulated therapies. So I will talk about the potential for maintaining health and the importance of continuing regular therapies to optimize Tim's health outcomes. And we really do also need to talk about adherence on a regular basis, not just on this occasion, but it will be worth asking how often Tim misses his regular therapies and asking about how he plans to add combination therapy to his regular therapy, especially as he's going to need to take this combination therapy with fatty foods every 12 hours over the long term. And so we'd really need to have good conversations about how he's going to manage all of that. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctors. We've got time for one more patient scenario, so uh, Dr. Douglas, if you would, please. Okay, thank you. So we have Helen, and she's 27 years of age, and she's homozygous for the Delta F508 CFTR mutation. Now, she has moderately severe lung disease with an FEV1 of 55% predicted and CF-related diabetes. And she's had a much more stable course since she's started combination therapy with Lumacaftor and Ivacaftor. And in particular, her nutritional status has improved and she has gained 1.3 kilos in weight over the last 12 months. And she has had no admissions to hospital in the last 12 months. Previously, she was being admitted around two or three times a year to hospital for intravenous antibiotics. So that's an improvement. Helen has recently married John, who has had genetic testing for CF and fortunately is not known to carry any CFTR mutation, which is good news. Helen's also taken on a new job with longer working hours, and she's concerned about managing her therapeutic regimen, given her changing circumstances. She's also considering starting a family. Helen's treatment regimen includes insulin through an infusion pump with four to five blood glucose measurements a day, inhaled antibiotics on alternate months, she takes Dornay's Alpha, Albuterol, and Hypertonic Saline. She's taking Azithromycin and using PEP and VEST therapy for her physio. She's also taking pancreatic enzyme replacement, vitamin supplementations, and in addition to that, the Lumacaft or Ivacaftor combination therapy. She's managing to attend the gym between two or three times a week. I have two questions here. My first is that this patient's therapeutic regimen seems exceptionally time-consuming. Uh, Dr. Wainwright, any changes she might be able to make to simplify things? Well, it is a big issue for, for patients. But when we look at it, the phase three clinical trials of combination therapy with Lumacaftor and Ivacaftor were conducted with patients taking all their usual CF therapies. So the benefits that were seen with CFTR modulated therapy are really on top of all the usual treatments. So we, as yet, don't have any good evidence around what, if any, therapies can be withdrawn to simplify or reduce the therapeutic burden and make patients' lives easier if they have got a good response to these therapies. And we know that there is always a risk that if patients cut back on therapy, then the benefits seen might not continue to be as effective. But chronic disease management is all about working with patients and helping them to make choices about their treatment regimens and taking into account their changing circumstances. And I think we need to make sure that Helen understands the evidence around the use of her different therapies and then work with her to make some shared decisions around her therapeutic regimen. And we may need to discuss different treatments according to her health needs. 
So I think it would be certainly useful clinically in the future to have some evidence around how to do this most effectively, because at the moment, we really have to do it by trial and error and use individual patient preferences as well. My second question is about her planned pregnancy. Uh, Dr. Douglas, what specific issues should be considered? Yes, it's a complicated situation. So we know that remaining stable from a health perspective and in particular maintaining nutritional status and avoiding pulmonary exacerbations is key during pregnancy. Helen's experienced an improvement in her nutritional status as well as a reduction in the frequency of pulmonary exacerbations with Lumacaftor and Ivacaftor. However, the difficulty here is that Lumacaftor, Ivacaftor and CFTR modulated therapy is not recommended during pregnancy and the clinical trials specifically ensured avoidance of pregnancy for subjects taking part in the trials. So here I'm going to need to advise Helen that the combination therapy she has been taking with good effect is not actually advisable during her pregnancy. So we'll need to discuss with her the options around starting a family and consider how we can maintain her health appropriately in the event that she wishes to go ahead and indeed start a family. And I'll need to inform her that she will have to stop her combination therapy prior to conception. Doctors, thank you both for today's cases and discussion. We've talked about CFTR modification therapies today. I'd like to take a moment now and ask you to focus on tomorrow. Uh, Dr. Douglas, what does the future hold for new CFTR modification therapies? Thank you, Bob. Well, it is a really exciting time for new therapeutic development, and there are lots of new therapies under development, but there are also some big challenges ahead. One of the major challenges is making sure that the CFTR modulator therapies are available for all patients with CF, including those that may not have been included in phase three trials to date. So patients with rare CFTR mutations, those at both extremes of lung function, including those with FEV1 less than 40% predicted or FEV1 greater than 100% predicted, patients who are pregnant and the very young patients from the time of diagnosis through newborn screening and perhaps in the future before birth to prevent disease manifestations becoming established. We also need approaches for those patients who have more severe liver disease. Additionally, we may see different patterns of disease emerging with earlier use of CFTR modulated therapies, and consequently, we may need to change how we manage our patients over time. We're going to need to develop new approaches and new clinical outcome measures so we can determine how patients will benefit from therapy. Dr. Wainwright, same question. Well, I think we're going to need to find out how best to monitor different patients across their lifetime as well. So how we monitor very young children and you know, older patients and how we juggle very complicated therapeutic regimens over time, which ones are the best or most needed for patients across different circumstances through their life, which ones they can drop. I think we're also going to have to consider the cost and health economic benefits um, as a society and make sure that the extraordinary benefits that these new therapies bring are available globally to all patients with cystic fibrosis. So I think just a quick summary, we have no cure for CF yet, although CFTR modulator therapies currently available give us huge hope, but I think we do have a really long road ahead. Thank you for sharing your insights, doctors. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing the key points of today's podcast in light of our learning objectives. So to begin, the appropriate use of CFTR modulators in clinical practice. Dr. Wainwright? 
Well, Bob, we talked about the importance of correct selection of CFTR modulator therapy to address the specific genotype of patients. And in particular, we had discussed how CFTR modulator therapies can improve lung function, reduce the frequency of pulmonary exacerbations and improve nutritional status. But we also discussed the use of CFTR modulators and monitoring in patients in specific clinical situations, such as with CF-related liver disease and also in pregnancy. And our second learning objective, Dr. Wainwright, the potential barriers to optimal use of CFTR modulators. Well, I think adherence is the major issue, both with taking CFTR modulator therapy as well as in maintaining other therapies. We also need to ensure the correct administration of CFTR modulator therapy with fatty food. We need to have avoidance of medications or foods that may interact with CFTR modulator therapies, including certain macrolides, certain antifungals, and herbal therapies in particular. Uh, And finally, Dr. Douglas, the role of patient-physician collaboration and communication in the use of CFTR modulator therapies. Yes, Bob, we've highlighted the importance of exploring patient expectations of CFTR modulator therapy, the importance of education around the use of CFTR modulation therapy, and finally discussing barriers to adherence, particularly amongst adolescents and young adults and patients with an already complex therapeutic regimen. From the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Dr. Tanya Douglas, Dr. Claire Wainwright, thank you both for participating in this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thank you, Bob. It was a real pleasure. Oh, well, thank you so much, Bob. I've really enjoyed taking part. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME-CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been developed for the CF care team, including pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive e-cystic fibrosis review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. 
Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Kiesi USA Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.